Good morning. And welcome. I'm going to sound the gong in a moment. Let our musicians exit the stage. And we'll move into 30 seconds of silence. And I will then sing in this very room. And you're welcome to join me. If you're curious about what the words are, they'll be up on the screen. And then we'll ground ourselves, continue to ground ourselves in affirmative prayer. very room there's quite enough love for all the world and in this very room there's quite enough love for all the world and there's quite enough love and quite enough power to walk through our every fear for spirit, one spirit is in this very room, in this very room, in this very room. And so know with me. In this moment, there's one life, one power, one infinite divine expression that animates is within, beneath, and upon all of life. That life is spirit, that life is divine, that life is that unseen force for good, that is that transcendent presence that is beyond description. But the designator we give it in this realm is God or spirit. And so what I know is that life is my life. Speaking in the I am and affirming for each person here. That life is my life here and now, like never before. I open myself, I ground myself in this moment in the, the dynamic energy of grounding myself to this beautiful earth energetically. And standing in the truth of my being and knowing that this infinite divine intelligence is finding in, in through and as me in each moment. That I stand in cooperation, collaboration, and co-creation with this beautiful presence that is the infinite divine presence. I stand facing life with the open fist, knowing that love and beauty, joy, possibility, cooperation and collaboration and community are the things that all of us are tripwired for. And so I activate that in this moment. I know that the, the presence and power of all the great avatars that guide, direct and inspire us, the, the great teacher Jesus of Nazareth, the Buddha, and all of the great teachers that have come down through the ages. Their wisdom and clarity is available in and through and as each and every one of us. So grounded in that, affirming the truth of being and knowing that everything that is appropriate will be revealed to each and every one of us, wherever we are on this journey. I just give thanks, knowing that healing is not a, a someday experience. It is a present moment revealing. 
And for this, I give thanks for that revelation of knowing, of, of lighting that, that spark of consciousness within myself and within ourselves that guides and leads and directs us. And so I just give thanks, releasing these words and knowing that this day, this moment is already a success in every way. For this, I give thanks and invite you to say with me, and so it is. So it is, yes. Great music today, wow. Man, the gang is just bringing it. Okay. And so I want to just invite you in this moment to do our inner, a little bit of a spiritual practice, the two or more. I invite you to stand up and, and find someone that you can interact with. And I'm going to invite somebody to come up here and do that with me. See, nobody's coming up here. Ray, come on up. Or, come on, yep, come on up, come on up. Okay. So I want you to look your partner in the face and say, welcome. 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 Thank you for being here today. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for being alive on this planet. Thank you for being alive on this planet. You have gifts to share. You have gifts to share. You have love to share. You have love to share. You have power to reveal. You have power to reveal. And potential to fulfill. And potential to fulfill. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Give them a hugger, high five. Sorry. You're very welcome. Thank you, Ray. Yeah. So that's a simple, very powerful spiritual practice that when we affirm and know for another person and we, and we say our words out loud, it activates something within us. And to see that, and it calls forth a new idea, a new possibility. It seems so strange, isn't it? But it's the same thing that happens. Same thing that happens when somebody upsets us and we use words that our grandmothers would not approve of when they go by. And then what happens is that energy captures us as well. And so that's part of choice. All right. So this month we're doing freedom. And I know a couple months ago we did freedom of belonging, and that's lovely. But we are tripwired. Our divine nature is one of freedom. And when we understand what a, what a gift that is and not a burden... I had a Russian neighbor years ago from, from Georgia in, the, in Los Angeles when I lived there. And he was a great guy, Misha, and it was really, he was really gruff. He looked like the bear, you know, and he'd come in and he'd always... When my, I, it was embarrassing because we had this exchange of profanities as a loving greeting to one another. And he would call me all these horrible names. And my mother and dad arrived one day from the airport and we get out of the car and here comes Misha down the walk. And he's throwing all these descriptions of me at me while my mother's behind me. She's like... She got to the door in tears. I'm like, Mom, it's okay. It's, he doesn't know what he's saying. He's, he speaks Russian. But the point being is, is that one of the things Misha would say to me is, I can't take all this freedom. It was too much choice. He said, there's too much choice here. It's overwhelming. Because when you're told what to do your whole life, and then you're given this be and do and what you, or whatever you want. And it's why I don't, it's like, it was too much for him. So I thought that, what a fascinating thing. So today is what freedom, why we know it's for us. Why do we know in our heart of hearts that freedom is part of who and what we are? Uh, next week, it's the freedom to worship. Uh, the following week, to tell our story in freedom. And then the lion that lies down with the lamb, which is your lion lying down with your lamb. And then we have a special guest speaker on the 31st. All right, so today, why we know it's for us, the self-imposed limitations. Isn't that fascinating? Because all of the limitations we live in are truly self-imposed. So we watched, I watched over the last few days a documentary on the History Channel on the War of 1812, because I don't know a whole lot about the War of 1812 other than the fact that every once in a while, very proud Canadians will come to me and say, you know, we burned the White House down. <laughs> I say, well, good for you. Were you there? 
Was this recently? Is Barack Obama now living in the garage? What happened? And then I watched the documentary. Oh, God, that vodka is just the right temperature right now. It's fantastic. <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks. War of 1812, yeah. There's only water in there, but speak your word. You never know what it's changing into as it goes down. <laughs> but anyway, so in the War of 1812, it turns out that the, the Canadians did not burn down the White House. A British general did. He floated his boat up the Chesapeake Bay, and he got off, and he walked into Washington because there were a 1,000 troops up on the U.S.-Canadian border ready to fight, and he burned everything down. But the point being with all of that is it's really a story of freedom. You know, the war went on from 1812 to 1815. And uh, it was good for me because I really wanted to pay attention because I thought, here we are celebrating freedom. And it seemed freedom was such a good... July is, is such a, a great month of, you know, it's a Canada Day and it's 4th of July for the United States tomorrow. And, but, you know, what, we celebrate this opportunity and idea of freedom. And it's such a... Um, it's such a good fit for what we teach in terms of our philosophy towards spirituality. Because wherever we're restricted, wherever there's limitation, um, there's an opportunity there rather than a way of, of living and a way of being. And so freedom is something that we just know throughout history. In the War of 1812, there was a 12,000 U.S. soldiers. They, some went up the St. Lawrence River and some came up through... Um, uh, New York State to the Canadian border and there was a big battle and there were the, the Canadians were outnumbered five to one and they were but it was a mixture of, of um, a militia there were there were Scots and Irish and there were English and there were French and it's the first time in the history of Canada that all of those different groups came together to defend their their land you know they're all farmers but isn't it interesting here we because we're so I mean there's so, so many similarities to us in terms of language and culture. And so I, can, I imagine as well that there was a sense underneath all of it that here I am fighting this, I'm fighting myself. Here's a farmer and I'm fighting a farmer and for what? And interestingly enough, all of that, that war went on for that period of time. It went on in Canada. It went on in the high seas. One of the things that started it was the, the English government constricted a thousand colonists from the colonies in the U.S. and put them into the British Navy without permission. And that upset some people. Said, you can't keep doing this. You know, we're free here. You can't take us away. And, I mean, basically another form of slavery. And then there was the battle in, uh, but, but, and there was a battle at Lake Champlain where this American U.S. Um, um, commander had a small fleet of frigates and he, put, he aligned himself in a bay where the, the much superior and better armed and equipped uh, English floated in. But the way he set it up, they were able to defend it and actually defeat the English. So fascinating through all of it and through all of the skirmishes how small, determined groups of individuals, Canadian and U.S., were able to fight off larger forces. And at the end of it, the borders didn't change. They finally negotiated peace, said, okay, we get it. You know, you guys want yours, we, we want ours. And, and, you know, being a Canadian citizen now, I'm just so grateful there is a place. To, you know, we have friends that call us now with the, it, from the excited states of America and ask if they can move here. And we just tell them, oh, it's easy. All you have to do is get hired as a minister in a, in a community, and then you come and live in the basement for about six months and, and, and pray like crazy and uh, hope that these people aren't completely crazy as well and uh, it's going to work out. 
But anyway, so it's a piece of cake. Go right ahead and <laughs> apply. But I think this idea that, you know, even now the Europeans, once the, you know, England left that, uh, uh, exited the, whatever they exited, uh, you know, I want to move to Canada. Everybody wants to move to Canada. I'm going to start, you know what, I'm, on the internet, I'm going to start uh, selling tickets to move to Canada. Until they shut me down. But it'll all be for a good cause. Anyway, but it is fascinating, isn't it? So with this whole idea of freedom, personal freedom, in uh, Nathaniel Braden's book, The Six Pillars of Self-Esteem, he talks about, as humans, we ponder things. We think about things. And, he, and I think one of the most significant things that we ponder is, can I trust my mind? Can I trust my mind? Because thoughts come all the time. They're, so, they're, they're random thoughts. They're, they come from many directions. I got up the other night, I was having nightmares, and I got up the other night and said, I need to do something for a little bit. Because I was having all these crazy dreams of like, ah, oh, this is not sleep. This is work. So, but I mean, it isn't interesting how our minds work. So can, can I trust my mind? Am I competent to think? Am I competent enough to make the right choices for myself? And you trust in that. Am I, am I, am I adequate? Am I a good person? Am I, do I have integrity? Is there a congruence between what my ideals are and what my practice is? So our minds, he said, we are the only species that can formulate a vision of what values are worth pursuing. We're the only species that can, can a, a formulate a vision of what values are worth pursuing and then pursue the exact opposite. Isn't that remarkable? We're the only ones that do that. We will decide what we want to do and who we're going to be and all of a sudden the door will open and we'll go the exact opposite direction for a variety of reasons. Because maybe we don't feel like we have enough integrity. Maybe we can't see it through. Maybe I'm not a good person and I don't deserve that. Whatever it may be, but we will do that. Our minds, as Braden says, do not automatically guide us to act on our best, most rational and informed understanding. They don't. You know, our hearts will pump blood as it's wanted and needed. It's automatic. If we're having something, if we cut ourselves, our bodies go to work immediately to heal it and bring the right combination of, of, uh, of, of experiences together to coagulate it and to heal it over time. Just does it. But that doesn't happen for us in the, our level of thinking with our minds. They don't guide us to act our best, most rational and informed, even when understanding and informed would be most beneficial. So how do we develop that trust, that knowing, groundedness? I mean, if we truly understood who we are and whose we are, that, the, that the, the Christ consciousness lies ready to be awakened at any moment within ourselves, and we really lived from that and trusted that, wouldn't it be an amazing experience? We probably wouldn't need this experience anymore. But it's fascinating to know, and that's the, that's, that is the tradition and the, the lineage that this tradition stands on. It's, po- it's about possibility. It's about awakening. We have been given an extraordinary responsibility, the option of turning, either turning the searchlight of consciousness either brighter or dimmer. Turning it on brighter or dimmer. We can, we can dampen it down. Laura and I got up this morning, and we have a fixture in the living uh, kitchen, and it wouldn't come on. And I thought, wow, isn't this amazing? I've got to watch what I'm writing about and getting ready to talk about. Well, I'm breaking lights around here now. But I told her, I said, well, it's probably not the breaker because all the other electrical stuff was working. And I said, and it's probably not the bulbs because it is rare for four 
uh, halogen light bulbs to go off simultaneously, I would say. The odds of that are pretty remarkable. So it's probably in the switch in the wall. So I get to go home and get out my screwdriver and fix it this afternoon. If you see sparks flying, like I always say to people when I'm working on electrical, if you smell flesh burning, pull me off. So, <laughs> Watch, i joking about that. Now I'll go home and get shocked. Great. I'm negating that right now energetically. <laughs> Not my experience. So some of the examples of this whole thing of freedom, because what happens is with these self-imposed experiences, we, we have all this opportunity for freedom, and yet... All of us, myself included, just get intimidated by the muchness of life at times. And so what is this about? And I think that, that Gabor Maté, who's a Vancouver doctor, has worked on the east side of Vancouver for years, and I admire his work tremendously because I notice that addictions are such a popular idea, and addictions keep us trapped. He's, done, he's, he's devoted his whole career to the study and, and working with uh, people of addiction. Now, his are more dramatic, heroin addictions and crack addicts and, and alcoholics. But I'm not talking about just that. I'm talking about anything. He says addictions are any behavior that gives you temporary relief but causes harm and limits freedom. And you cannot give it up. It's addiction. So any behavior that you know causes harm and you can't give it up. So like he said, it can be a food addiction. It can be a, a shopping addiction. It can be a, you know, and, and the patterns that we fall into to, to allow the conditions of the world to take our thinking and our beingness in a direction that we know is not good for us. No, I went to the Center for Spiritual Living and I have a new affirmation I'm working with. And as soon as something unexpected happens, we jump right back into what we used to do, which is, which is condemn and to blame and to hate and to, to judge. And that's what waking up is to go, you know, I'm not going there now. I could go there, but I'm not going there because we get to choose. Gabor says, trying to escape pain through addiction always creates more pain. So how do you know you may be working, working in a, an addiction or unhealthy behavior? Well, we think it's going to relieve the pain. It's going to be a momentary escape when it just creates more pain, more guilt, more shame, more depreciation. So why would we trust our minds? Why would we think we have integrity when we've made, we've made a vow to ourselves and then we don't fulfill it? And we've all done those things. So how do we manage that better? How do we understand and work with ourselves in a way to realize, you know what? And to, to realize it's not either or, it's, it's if we stay on the path, even though we go off the path at times, if we stay on the path more often than not and realize it's not a matter of, of if, it's only a matter of when. And I like that. I think it's important to give ourselves a little bit of leeway as we try to unravel a lifetime of wobbly choices. And, start, and that's how we build integrity. I'm going to do this. And then we think about it for six months. And then all of a sudden we start doing this. We start taking the first step. That's progress. Why are people afraid of life? As Gabor says, why are we afraid of life? What's there to fear? What is so scary? We live forever. Our souls, who we are, live forever. Eternity. Eternity. We are eternal beings. We have always been, will always be, and yet we create all this fear and drama and hysteria. Why do we fear life? See, what happens for the addict as Gabor says, is when they take the injection or they take the drink, they, they, they have an, a sense of peace and control and calmness that they can't get anywhere else. Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones, anybody know what Keith? I mean, if there's a walking human being that probably shouldn't be walking anymore, it's Keith Richards. Laura and I watched a documentary, tried to watch his documentary 
couple months ago and we finally just turned it off because it was just, he's hard to understand even. Like, I don't even know if that's English. But uh, he says in his biography, he says the, the addiction was always about oblivion. Always about oblivion. About forgetting for a little bit. He says, and it's amazing the contortions that we go through just not to be ourselves for several hours. If you are able to connect with that source of life within you, and for myself as well, then why wouldn't you want to be there with yourself? To have the grace, as a, as a healthy adult, have the grace and the beauty and the groundedness to say, you know what, I know you made mistakes. I know you've told lies. I know you've fallen short. I know that there's all these reasons for you to judge yourself harshly, but that was then and this is now. And I love you. That's the story of the prodigal son. Coming home, coming home to the father. Slay the fatted calf. Let's have a party. But most of us are not, the, not that son. Then we become, when, all, when the forgiveness starts, then we shift right over into being the older brother. He says, what the hell is this going on? He spent all the money, went out and danced with all the girls and drank all the whiskey and gambled his money away and now we're having a party for him? And I stayed here and worked hard? What the heck is going on? And see, we get to be all those characters. But the infinite, this divine presence that is unconditionally love, he says, I love you. Whenever you come home, I'm here for you. Come here, the big warm embrace. And Gabor says that that's what happens with addicts. For many addicts, when they take the drug, they get this feeling of warmth, like a, the first hug from their mother, ever. He said there's three things that people are afraid of, death, other people, and their own minds. Isn't that fascinating that we'd be afraid of our own minds? Death, other people? I mean, we don't die. We do not die. Our spirits are eternal. I've had enough experiences and I've heard enough stories and read enough uh, um, people that I respect and admire and adore that, that we don't die our bodies die there's no death it's fascinating when we look at all this random acts of violence and we think we're going to kill one another we kill these bodies and it's horrible and it's awful and I don't support it but we don't kill each other all we do is then all we do is then move into a deeper karmic connection with that person you know you're, you hate them enough to kill them and now you want to be connected with them for eternity I always tell people when people cut me off in traffic and go by me a million miles an hour, I pray for their highest and furthest. I don't want to be in higher relationship with them. I already don't like them a whole lot. Let them go. So it's fascinating. But we, we fall into the lie that death's in a reality. We just watched the um, uh, 60 Minutes on Bubba Watson. He's a, a championship golfer. And Bubba, a lot of the other golfers don't like him. They said in a fist fight, who'd be, you know, they, they asked the professional golfers this question. If you were in a fist fight, who's the first person that you would want to fight? I mean, there's an inspired idea, isn't it? We should do that. Pick somebody out in here. <laughs> I mean, come on. You probably already are, now stop that. <laughs> probably me. Well, you go out back. If I'm not there in 10 minutes, start without me. <laughs> But Bubba Watson is terrified of people. And he looks like he's arrogant. He's super shy. He doesn't like around big, he, doesn't, he can't stand being around big crowds. Other people. It's fascinating. But addiction is an, an attempt to fulfill the emptiness from the outside. 
the emptiness from that. I need more and more of this so I can feel fulfilled. And dopamine gets released. A lot of you already know this, but dopamine gets released when we're excited. There's that chemical that gets released by the brain and there's euphoria. And an addict's brain, the endorphin system gets compromised because as children, Gabor says as children, they don't get the love and the, and the, and the attention and the nurturing to help create the brain circuitry to experience that. So if children are not given enough attention and love and nurturing when they're little, the brain doesn't develop those circuits. And so what happens is they come into life and the only way they can get that experience is through chemical. And so, as I mentioned earlier, it's like a warm hug. A heroin addict will say it's like a warm hug for the first time in my life. So when we understand that, it gives us a little better indication of what the problem is. How can someone be doing this? When we see it happening and it's not our experience, it seems a little strange, does it not? And the reason Gabor got so interested in this was that as a child, he was born in Hungary in 1944. And at that time, when he was born, his mother called the doctor because he couldn't stop crying. He wouldn't stop. And so she called the doctor up and said, well, I, you know, my son won't stop crying and I don't know what to do. And he said, the doctor said to her, his mother, all of the babies are crying. All of the babies are crying. Because psychically, energetically, they're picking up the mother's fear. They're picking up the mother's terror. I mean, that's how we communicate. And you know that's true when you have babies around you, little ones. And so he had that experience of not enough. And he, what he realized growing up, then his theme to survive was, okay, he said, if you don't want me, if I'm not loved, and it wasn't because his mother didn't try, but there was such fear around what was happening that it, when we go into fear, it limits that capacity to be in love and to share love. And so he, he, his motto, the, his way to sur- survive and get through life was, if you don't want me, if you don't love me, I'll work hard so you need me. Anybody done that one? They might not love me, but they'll need me. And he says, addicts will inject themselves, they'll drink to excess. He says, and here we are. So individually, we see the addict's behavior. And it's not a form of freedom. So I'm talking about how we bind ourselves, not just with chemicals, but with these ideas of limitation, self-imposed limitation. You know, ways to, to disqualify ourselves. Oh, you made the mistake, you're disqualified, that's not for you. That's why sociopaths are so successful. Sociopaths don't, don't function like that. They just keep going. They don't care how you feel. They want to get theirs. In fact, they were saying that on Wall Street, they, they try and recruit sociopaths because they don't really care if someone's been taken advantage of. They just, they just know that they're making money because the company's making money. They want people to focus there. We don't want somebody that cares about another person. You know, how would you be able to make these hard decisions that, that might hurt someone so that, and that would limit our profits? I mean, it's fascinating. To, they would recruit for a sociopath. It's good to know, isn't it? But the point is, is that addicts will inject themselves, but as, as we inject the earth, if you look at what we're doing on the planet, we're injecting the, the ocean, is a lot dirtier now than it was 50 years ago. They just, just yesterday on the internet, I saw this big pile of green, they call it green guacamole that floated up on the shores of Florida. And it smells like cow manure. What a great combination, huh? And they're concerned, and the biggest concern is, well, it's tourist season. Gonna, you know, it's going to affect pocketbook. It's going to cost people money. I mean, that's what the article said. So they got to get rid of this green manure-smelling guacamole somehow. I'm sure they'll be able to take the smell out and be selling it to us for some nutritional value before we know it. But that's what they got going. 
So it's the addiction, as he says, as we see it, and he, he spent a lifetime looking at this. It's the addiction to the chemicals and to, to trying to fill ourselves from the outside in, and, and we look at it, we see it at the bigger scale. So we have companies and we have ways of doing business that, and, I, and I'm all for commerce, and I'm all for you know, clean energy and all this stuff that's going on. I think innovate, innovation is the answer. But when, we're, when the, the lust for power and wealth and acquisition is above and beyond anything else, it's out of balance. Some of the most famous people throughout history rose to great power, and Gavor talks about this. There, uh, Alexander the Great talks about the comparisons between Alexander the Great, Napoleon, Stalin, and Hitler. And you know what all four of those guys had in common? Well, first of all, they were all short men. They were all men of short stature. And that's not saying all men of short stature have a problem, but these four were very driven. It was part of the thing that triggered the drive for them. For power, because they lusted for power. Even Napoleon, when he was put away in isolation, solidarity, solitary confinement, would just sit there and say, I love power. I just love power. Because it fulfilled him. It made him feel alive and a sense of purpose. But they were all short in stature, and all of them were outsiders. See, Stalin was not a Russian. He was from Georgia. And Hitler was not a German. He was from Austria. And Napoleon was not French. He was Corsican. And Alexander the Great was not a Greek, although he led the Greek army. He was a Macedonian. So right away, they come from the outside. They got to step in and find their way and take their place and, and all this stuff. But all this stuff is, it lines up in, so beautifully with this idea of addiction to power. Outsiders got to make a name for themselves, got to prove themselves. I mean, I, I, it's fascinating when he, he drew these comparisons. But all of them, to a man, sought power so they could feel okay within themselves. And then we have somebody, a couple guys that come along. We have a couple guys that come along. One was the name of Jesus, and the other was Buddha. And they both faced temptation. I think I've got a quote coming up here, slowly. But Jesus and Buddha were both tempted by power. They talk about the devil. Well, we don't teach the devil. But that was their own egoic, the lower, the lower qualities in themselves tempting them to step into power because they could have done that easily. But they said, I'm not here to control. I'm not here to control. I'm here to teach. I'm here to teach. It's a huge difference. They didn't, <clears throat> the, uh, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within. And the Buddha said when he was dying, the Buddha said, don't mourn me. Don't worship me. Find the lamp inside yourself. Be a light unto yourself. 500 years later, Jesus came along and said, you are the light of the world. All of them are a reflection of consciousness, the journey. So we get a chance to choose. We get a chance to either to turn the, the switch on brighter or dimmer. We get to say, wow, Napoleon is my hero, and I'm going to do everything he did. Or we get to say, look at the examples of these great teachers, these great avatars that transformed and transcended their, their consciousness in a way that changed the world. As Gabor says, when we know this, he said, let's stop looking at people in power to change things. Because quite honestly, they are some of the emptiest people on the planet. So empty that they need to, to acquire this position and this level of power to feel good about themselves from within. We have to find the light within ourselves. We have to find the light within our communities. We have to find our own wisdom, our own creativity, to find our own innovation. We can't wait for people in power because they're not going to make things better. 
unless we force them to. Unless we demand and make them. That's what it takes. And and if we we show up in the same consciousness they are, in lack and limitation and, 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 and accusation, rather than understanding and standing in a vision of possibility and saying, you know what, this doesn't work anymore. We've done enough of this. How can we do this differently? I don't have all the answers to that, but I'll tell you, I know that doing more of the same thing and getting the same results is not the answer. You know, some say, as Gabor says, some say human nature is selfish, competitive, envious, greedy, dishonest. And those are qualities that we see. A lot of people are ignorant. A lot of people don't understand that what we do to one another, we do to ourselves. That's how oneness works. But as he says, and I agree with him, that the qualities all of us possess that are the, the richest and the most powerful are cooperation and kindness and love, generosity, community-oriented, world-oriented. We talk about our motto being a world that works for everyone. That seems impossible. I've even challenged it. I've, I've challenged Oregon. What do you mean a world that works for everyone? But all it takes is a small, committed group of individuals to live their lives more grounded in the grace and, and to realize that it is our opportunity to live from that Christ consciousness. Dr. Holmes writes in... Uh, the Essential Ernest Holmes, we just finished this class. It's one of my favorite books. It's a collection of his, his various writings, and if you're interested in, in a, a compilation of things that are really rich, I, I highly recommend it. But he says this, there's part of it. Mental science does not deny the divinity of Jesus, but it does affirm the divinity of all people. It does not deny that Jesus was the Son of God, but affirms that all people are the sons and daughters of God. That's the truth. That's exactly what this great teacher taught. And yet, over the years, we've made him the great exception. Let's love Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Because that's wide open. And it's, it's living from the consciousness of what that teacher represented. It does not deny that the kingdom of God was revealed through Jesus, but it says that the kingdom of God is also revealed through you and me. Are you revealing the kingdom? A little bit more today. And you know that. You know when you're turning that light on brighter. You know when you're, you're, you're crimping down your own beingness because it's something, some past slight that took, took, uh, took place in your life. Dr. Holmes writes, Jesus used this power directly and spoke it into being consciously and because he had perfect faith in it, he performed miracles. He, held, he healed the sick, raised the dead, stilled the winds and waves and brought the boat immediately to shore. You and I can do the same thing if we believe that we can. Jesus said that all things are possible to those who believe. And Jesus viewed the world not as a solid fact, but as liquid form. He viewed life as a, not as a physical fact, but as a set of spiritual laws. But that's wisdom. It's a beautiful thing. I mean, they went, they went before us to, to plant some seeds and, 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 and foster this opportunity for all of us. And we don't have to do it overnight. Because we can't do it overnight. You can't skip a kingdom. What's ours to learn and to know in this moment so that I can move through the next threshold of beingness is the opportunity. In uh, Fema Children's book, Living Beautifully, there's a beautiful passage around this. Because what do we do with all this? We, got, we all got the, the habits and addictions going on in our lives that help bring relief to us temporarily, perhaps. 
What do we do with this? And then the world, I just heard on the way to the, uh, to the center today that this, the firefighters that have been up on the front lines up in Fort McMurray are at a point of just complete exhaustion, just completely worn out because they've been up there for so many days straight and they're in need of counseling. They're in need of someone to just sit with them and listen to their story and, and help them process because they have just depleted. You know, and there was a, a bombing in, uh, in the eastern world again and I, I, don't, I don't know the countries anymore. They, it seems to happen every couple of days along with what happened in Orlando. What do we do with all this stuff? Because shouldn't we be indignant? Shouldn't we want to wage war against this? And what spiritual practice and the spiritual journey, I think, invite us to do is so beautifully articulated by Pima Chodron in this book, Living Beautifully. There's a practice, and she, she talks about 9-11. I think all of us remember 9-11 when the, the towers went down. And she said, in those days that followed, in, all the, in this all-pervasive atmosphere of not knowing what was happening or what to do, Large groups of people gathered in cities and towns throughout America to do a particular practice called Tonglen, T-O-N-G-L-E-N. It's a Buddhist practice. And the instruction was to breathe in as deeply as possible the pain and fear of all those who had been in the burning towers. All those who had jumped to their deaths and all those in the airplanes and all the millions traumatized by the event and also to breathe in the anger of the hijackers and those who had planned the attack. And then to breathe out, sending relief to all of them. So this beautiful practice, because you and I are the thing itself. We are the ones, as Gene Houston writes in the foreword to the Science of Mind textbook, we are the ones we've been waiting for. The second coming is here now in you and I. And it's, that's the truth. That's, that's the, the opportunity we have to, to let our light shine. Don't stop hiding it under the bushel basket. And so what I'd like you to do is put both feet on the floor for a moment. Let's do some tonglen together. And I want you to just be mindful of your breath for a moment. And if you're comfortable closing your eyes, I'll keep my eye on your purses and wallets so no one walks off of them. But you just deep, breathe deeply in this moment. You are the thing itself. I recognize and acknowledge the divine presence within you. I'm speaking to that part of you right here and right now. And so I'm going to invite you in this moment to breathe in any of the, the, the unwanted habits or the old thinking or ways of acting that do not support you in aligning with your ideals and your heart's desire. Breathe it in. Breathe it in. Let it be transformed as you take it in. And let it out. Let out the relief. Let it out purified to be transformed. You have transformed that energy. Let us breathe in the anguish and the, and the fatigue, the confusion for these men that have been on, men and women that have been on these fire lines day after day in service to this, this beautiful province and to Saskatchewan and to this country. Let's breathe in their fatigue for them. Let's carry some of it for them. Taking it in, purifying it, letting it out. Let us breathe in the suffering and the sorrow of those people that have lost loved ones where these explosions have taken place on this planet in the last week, two weeks. And once again, letting it out with relief. We purify it. Let us breathe in all of the, the, the anger and sorrow and suffering and pain and hatred that went on with the shooting in Orlando. Shootings everywhere where lives were taken. And then breathing it out in relief. This is our opportunity. 
We are a washing machine for consciousness. This is what the infinite does for us when we, we give it, surrender it to it, whatever it may be. I can't carry this, so I surrender it to you to be purified and transformed, whatever it may be. So let's pray ourselves for a moment as we finish our discussion today. Once again, beginning with the recognition of the one life and the one power, that is who and what each and every one of us is, this divine, eternal presence, that we have chosen, and I acknowledge this, I have chosen to be here now in this body, in this form, in all of these relationships for the highest level of growing in service to humanity and service to God, to be an agent of change and transformation so that God finds a way to readily have its way here and now on this planet by means of me in creativity and opportunity and cooperation and love and beauty. And so that life is my life. I affirm it here and now. I know that each breath I take in the mindfulness of this moment and when I'm reminded that I see suffering upon this planet where I see something that triggers my frustration or my addiction for relief, I, I stand with it and take it in and I breathe into it. I lean into it. And I know as I breathe it in, it is transformed. This is my knowing. It is done unto me as I believe. And this is a belief that I use to transform my life and to help transform this world. And so I am so grateful for the opportunity to stand with you, to be reminded of this powerful practice, that we are not helpless and hopeless in all circumstances, that we are here to make a difference, that we stop waiting for the people in control to change the world, that each and every one of us has this opportunity to be that ambassador of love, beauty, creativity, proactive thinking, deep and powerful transformation to stand with that tribe of light workers upon this planet and to to brighten that switch that light of consciousness for this i give thanks and together we say and so it is <laughs>